I love this. It's one of my favorite, favorite chapters in all of the Bible. And uh, although I confess that a lot of Revelation I don't understand, and uh, a lot of it uh, needs a great amount of study, I always take from Revelation 5 comfort in the fact that there's going to be something in the future that is going to be amazing in each one of our lives. Because we belong to the Lord, right? we think this earth, the time that we're here on the earth, okay, fine, we're going to be here maybe 70, 80, maybe 90 years on this earth. But then there's going to be a time when we go to heaven and we're going to be there for eternity. And all the things that are going to happen in the future, we're going to be part of. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour glory and power for ever and ever. <coughs> the four living creatures said, Amen. 
and the elders fell down and worshipped. It's a great, it's a great chapter, isn't it? And as I read it, I get that picture of what it's going to be like in heaven's glory. I get that picture that we're going to be not delivering cars or study of the scriptures for another meeting or disappearing to serve the Lord in another country or even doing something here or working day by day or being in school. We're going to be in heaven and we're going to be worshipping the, 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 as we see here, worshipping the Lamb, worshipping the Son of God who gave so much of us, so much for us. And, you know, I've been thinking of that verse and the kids learned it on Thursday. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And if we belong to the Lord, and I'm sure we all do this morning, if we belong to him, if we've taken that step of faith and uh, asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into our hearts and uh, become saved, then we are all going to be part of what's going to take place in Revelation. And it's not just going to be over a couple of years, it's going to be for eternity. And that excites me. I mean, you know, sometimes I get moved to tears, I must admit. Sometimes here when I think of what God has done for us and uh, what he's got in store for us. More than that, if there could be more than that, because we belong to him. It's exciting times. And um, I, I, I must confess, as I see things going on in the world, I'm convinced that within myself that there's, the time is very, very near when the Lord Jesus Christ is gonna come back. We don't know when it could be. It could be today. Could be next week, could be next year, next 10 years. We don't know. But circumstances that are happening in the world today, I look at it and I think, yeah, the scriptures are being, are being uh, foretold here. And um, I hope you find it exciting as well, because I do. All of because the Lord Jesus died for us and shed his blood on that cross so that we could uh, become members of his family. Great. Verse 10 says, to finish, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. That's going to be a time in the future of the future, a time when we come back and we will reign on the earth. And uh, Revelation 5 just gives us that little, that little clip of what it's going to be like in heaven's glory. I hope that encourages you. First, yeah, thought you'd like to know where Paul is this morning. And uh, I had this picture sent to me yesterday. Uh, he was at a, he's at a conference in Hungary and uh, a number of people had their birthday while he was there. And so you can see Paul has got the cake with the most candles. I guess we understand the reason why. Uh, <coughs> Yeah, this, this, this girl is someone that Susan and I met recently. I don't know the fella, but there they are celebrating Paul's birthday in Hungary. Maybe, you know, in the future in Land of North, we have to, when it's someone's birthday, bring chocolate cake along, you know. There we are. So there we are. Fine. So now we'll move on to our study. 
Leadership lessons from Samuel. You know, I've been thinking a lot about Samuel recently. And uh, I've got a question for you. What do we know about Samuel? <coughs> Who can tell me one fact? He was left at the temple by his mother. He was left at the temple by his mother. Right? Okay. What else do we know about him? Who did he discover in the temple? God spoke to him. God spoke to him. Yes, okay. What did he do when he was there? Well, he served, didn't he? You know, I find it very interesting that we don't know as much about Samuel as we would like to know. Because actually he lived for a very long time. Exactly how long, I am not sure. But I am certain of this, that uh, he served, first of all, during the time when Eli was high priest. Then he served for a considerable period of time himself and then he continued to serve during the reign of King Saul and that's 40 years and he was still around at the early stage of David's kingship so he lived for a considerable amount of time and, but scripture does not choose to tell us an enormous amount about him, despite the fact that he was an amazing servant of God. And it gives us a question, I think. Give me a question anyway. Why has God chosen not to tell us many of the amazing things that this man did. You know, we are told that he was a man of considerable consistency. Anyway, let's just read what 1 Samuel chapter 7 has to say about him. And as we're reading it, I want to ask you to think, what is this telling us about him? How we read, chapter 7, verse 1. So the men of Kiriath-Yerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to Abinadab's house <coughs> on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. The ark remained at Kiriath-Yerim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So it's at this point we see Samuel stepping in. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. 
So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtaroths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shed. He called it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel. And Israel delivered the neighbouring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year he went on a circuit from Bethel to, Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah where his home was, and there he also held court for Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. You know, we're going to pick out just a few of the things that this passage teaches us about this amazing man, Samuel. Again, as I said to you earlier on, there aren't a large number of things we know about his ministry. But we are told a number of significant things, and you know, we are told that he was the leader. And so we actually get a picture of exactly what leadership actually means. So if we're going to do things for God, because that's what Samuel 
wanted to do or what Samuel did. It was the desire of his mother, as we learnt in our study, to do something for God. And you know, if, you, if I take the first thing that stands out to me, it's this. Here was a woman, here was a young man who grew into an old man, who for all of his life wanted to do what God wanted him to do. Despite the fact there were all kinds of problems all around, what Samuel did was constantly focus on what God wanted from him. That's a challenge to me. You know, it's easy for us to get distracted, isn't it, by what's going on around us. It's so easy for problems and difficulties to just crowd in upon us and for us not to seek to do what God wants us to do. Now we thought, didn't we, when we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 3, how the first thing Samuel had to do was listen to God. The second thing Samuel had to do was to take a pretty difficult message to Eli. And what I find interesting, when you get to the end of 1 Samuel chapter 3 and moving into 1 Samuel chapter 4, <coughs> we are told that there were regular appearances of God to Samuel. And you kind of get the idea as you read 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse number 1. Okay, from now onward things are going to go great because here's somebody who is serving God. But actually when you look at chapters 4, 5, 6, it's anything but what is happening. Israel is still in a real mess. That wasn't because Samuel wasn't serving. It was because actually the people of God were not yet ready for his leadership. And you know, it's a significant thing that Samuel knew that he had to wait for God to act. And when does Samuel start to act? It was when all the people of God turned back to the Lord. Samuel was someone who recognised the process that had begun in chapter 3. <clears throat> when God had first spoken to him was now the process that was actually happening as far as Israel was concerned. The Lord had begun appearing to him. The failures of chapters 4 through to 6 had to be dealt with before the nation of Israel 
can go forward. And it brings before us the fact that failure is something that God wants to deal with and God will deal with as he moves forward. So, let's observe what happened. The people are now in a state of repentance. So what is it that Samuel seeks to do? Well, Samuel is clear that the situation the people of God are now in, they have to fully appreciate and they have to rid themselves of foreign gods and Ashtaroths. They have to commit themselves to serve the Lord and serve him only and they have to act. So three things. They have to recognize their failure. They have to say, Lord, we are going to follow you. That's good, isn't it? To say, Lord, we're going to follow you. But what is very clear, the writer of 1 Samuel tells us, is they actually do what they say that they are going to do. And brothers and sisters, you know, it is such an important thing for you and me to recognize what God wants from us. It's easy to say, Lord, we're going to follow you. But what 1 Samuel teaches us is that they actually did what they said they were going to do. It's easy to promise God we will do things, isn't it? Very easy. It's much harder to actually put into practice what we tell God we are going to do. You know, I'm quite certain that Samuel wanted what was best for the people of God. He was an amazing man. But he recognised that he had to wait God's time and he had to say to the people of God, these are the things that need to be done. And he had to observe that the people of God went ahead and did them. This was the leadership that this man of God gave to the people of God. So, having seen that forward movement, we then observe in what we read together that Samuel was about consolidating what had happened. It wasn't enough to say, oh yes, the people of God are doing it. They were. But what he needed to do with the people of God was make sure that they continued in the pathway that they were going on in. And so he called them all together. He told them to meet at this place Mizpah. We, we read that a number of times in 
our reading. Mizpah is first mentioned in the book of Genesis uh, and chapter 31. It was where, in fact, uh, Jacob had a conversation with both God and with those who were enemies of his nation. It was a place where God had <coughs> revealed himself. It was a place of enormous blessing for the people of God. I've mentioned in the past, you may have heard it, my grandfather became a believer just at the point uh, when the First World War was declared. As far as I can work out, he was actually led to the Lord by my grandmother. And before he went away to war, he made a ring for my grandmother. He was a jeweler by trade. He made a ring for my grandmother and the ring had Mizpah on it. He had only been a believer for a very short period of time when he gave this ring to my grandmother. And the meaning we are told of Mizpah in Genesis is this. God will watch between us when we are apart from each other. And he gave that to my grandmother when he went away to fight in the First World War. He had a terrible time during that, that war. But constantly in his mind was that God is the God who keeps covenant. The God who protects us. And Samuel clearly understood that Mizpah was a very significant place. A place where he wanted the people of God to commit themselves fully to God. And in that committal process, he wanted them to be unified. He wanted them to understand the relationship that exists between God and his people. Yes, he wanted to see a real consolidation of the repentance that they had committed themselves to and he wanted them to act. So that was the next stage of what we have in chapter 7. Yes, the people had repented, but Samuel is quite clear that repentance requires confession of sin and it needs to be something that is absolutely real. That's true leadership, isn't it? You know, he wasn't telling them, you've made a mess of things, you need to do this, you need to follow me. No. What Samuel did in the leadership that he had was to see the place that the people of God were, get them to continue to think about 
what they had done. Get them to understand that they needed to follow God. And as a result, he was used in bringing enormous blessing. Now, of course, the problem that had occurred again and again in chapters 4 through to 6 were the Philistines. And so Samuel recognised it wasn't just enough to say to these people, look, you need to follow God. He needed to make sure that the problems that they had were very thoroughly dealt with. Because you see, the moment Samuel encouraged the people of God to go forward, you can be sure that the enemy is going to step in. You know, that's ever been the truth, isn't it? When we seek to follow God, we can expect to be attacked. In our personal lives, in our national life, attack comes. And this is exactly what happens here. The Philistines heard what was going on and that produced fear in the people of God. So a true leader understands what the problems are going to be but these people knew who they could go to and they said don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Now, you will remember from our studies what they did the last time that the Philistines were attacking them. Do you remember? What they did was they took the Ark of the Lord there. And they thought that by taking the Ark of the Lord there, they would get salvation. Because their trust was in a box. Not in God. Their trust was in their religious symbols. Not in God. But you see, they had now come through a process where they realised that God's in control. And they realised, as they should have realised way back in chapter 4, that when you've got a problem, you take the problem to God. You take the problem to God's man, who is the one who's going to be able to show you the way. And this is what happened here. They recognised they had a problem. They no longer looked to themselves for their solution. What they did was they brought the problem to God and they asked God to deal with it which is, of course, a big lesson for us. You know, very often we think we've got the solutions, don't we? But our job is to bring the problem to God and to see what happens. Now, the problem was the Philistines, wasn't it? Yes, you all agree? The problem was the Philistines. So, what does Samuel do? Well, he takes a suckling lamb and he sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. 
then he cries out to the Lord on Israel's behalf. You see, the relationship that Israel had with God or should have had with God, and now they do have it, is a relationship based on sacrifice. A relationship based on who God is. You know, humanly speaking, <coughs> offering a sacrifice is not going to defeat the Philistines, is it? Humanly speaking, you would expect a powerful army to be involved. But actually one of the big lessons of the book of 1 Samuel is when God deals with the Philistines, God deals with them his way. We'll all remember, won't we, what God used in the time of David. Stone. One stone. Now, what God is using is a sacrifice. And the people <coughs> calling upon God. And it was while this sacrifice was going on that the attack was dealt with by God. Look what God does. The Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into panic so that they were routed before the Israelites. But you will observe one thing. After God deals with the Philistines, the Israelites have a responsibility. And you will remember, although we haven't got there yet in our study, but we all know the story of David and Goliath, don't we? But what we know is that when the stone hit the giant and the giant was defeated and David killed the giant, then the Israelites went out and dealt with the Philistines. And we got exactly the same here. It is brought before us that when God does his part, our responsibility is to do ours. We can't just say to God, sort my problems out. We have to say to God, Lord, here are the problems. I put them into your hand. I know you will do your part and I am required to do mine. And that's exactly what happens. And it's a principle of scripture. God provides, but you and I have to do what God expects you and me to do. So, again, we see this principle of consolidation. This is the second time in this passage that after an action has taken place, first time they repented, and then they come and sacrifice. Now they have seen the defeat of the Philistines, and so we get the next consolidation. And what happens is a stone is put up between Mizpah and Shem to remind the people of God. Notice, very significant, 
Thus far the Lord has helped us. And it's important for you and me to realise we have got to be continually dependent on God. Because God helped us in the past, it doesn't mean he's going to do exactly the same in the future. If we get into 2 Samuel at some stage in our studies, we will actually observe. There's a situation in 2 Samuel where the Philistines attack the people of God and David asks, Lord, shall I go up against them? And the Lord says, go. Then they attack again. <clears throat> and David asks again, Lord, shall we go up against them? And the Lord answers, you will, but not the same way as last time. You've got to wait this time, says the Lord, until you hear the sound of the wind in the mulberry trees. And when you hear that sound, then you go up and, and then you attack. And this principle is here. Samuel is saying to the people of God, so far the Lord has helped us. Why has the Lord helped us? Well, number one, because we've repented. Number two, because we are sacrificing to him. Number three, because we are trusting him. The Lord has helped us. And the result was that throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. That's actually very interesting because the Philistines caused Israel dreadful hassle throughout the book of 1 Samuel, particularly during the reign of King Saul, there's one point where they were not causing hassle. And that's when Samuel, without an army, but his hand in the hand of God, was the leader of the people of God. So, some key lessons for us. <clears throat> you know, Samuel recognised the point at which he needed to act. As I've said, we've got chapters 4, 5 and 6, where Samuel was living God's way, but the people of God were not. And Samuel knew the time for action. He knew that he had the responsibility to teach the people of God repentance. And you know it's an important point that as the people of God, we all want to go forward, don't we? But we need the kind of guidance that Samuel gave. Samuel was also someone who recognised the power of the enemy. He understood God's power. He understood human responsibility. And he constantly led in these matters. Yes, 1 Samuel 7 talks about leadership. But it's a different kind of leadership to we normally 
think about. His leadership among the people of God was ensuring that there was a constant spiritual response to what God wanted. That's what God wants, isn't it? You and me to be spiritual in our attitudes and to live in a way that is God-honoring. Shall we pray? Father, we come before you. We recognise the tremendous example that Samuel was. And we pray our God and our Father that we might constantly recognise that we need to be dependent on you. Help us, we pray, to honour you and glorify you in our hearts and lives. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus.